Let's turn now in the Holy Scriptures to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading this evening with verse 17. Ephesians 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry, and sin not. Let, the sun, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We're going to consider this evening the first three verses of this, 17, 18, and 19. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the Word of God that we consider tonight, the Apostle finally gets to more specifics with regard to instruction on what we often call the practical life of the child of God. There really is no other life for the child of God. What he is describing is exactly who and what a child of God is. After explaining the doctrine how a child of God becomes a child of God, how does the church become a church, how do one become a member of the church so that one is part of the body of Christ, indeed the apostle turns to now describing that life 
What does the life of a child of God look like? How does a child of God behave? And he did that beginning in chapter 4 with the word therefore. Only he began in the first 16 verses to lay it out generally. He laid it out generally as regards the church. He likened the church to a building being built and a body that's growing up, especially to a child that's growing up. He was describing the sanctifying of the body of Christ, its growth not only numerically throughout time and history, but in holiness and righteousness and knowledge unto God. But now, in verse 17, he turns to more specific matters. In many ways, what he is doing here is now describing what it means to grow up into Christ, what it looks like. How does a mature Christian live? And what does a mature church of Jesus Christ look like? And he's going to describe that. Now, what the apostle does here is instructive all by itself because it's a reminder that the Christian is not simply someone who knows something. Certainly, knowledge is important, as the apostle is going to explain even in this passage, because it's the knowledge, a certain knowledge, of the Gentiles that explains their behavior, so also with a child of God. But the life of a child of God is not simply what he knows, nor is it limited to knowledge, but it has to do with what's in his heart and how he lives his life. That's important, and that's why there is instruction on this, and why the book does not simply end at the end of chapter 3. But it continues, and continues not simply generally, but very specifically. The point here is that someone who does not look like this, someone who does not behave like this, someone that does not think and act like this is no child of God, nor is a church a church. Notice also in this regard that what the apostle is setting forth here really may be seen as a sort of specific theme for what follows. If we had a general theme, the general theme could be called growing up into Christ. Growing up into Christ. And he then begins to lay out what that is, only he begins negatively. Walk not as other Gentiles walk. Now, the fact that it's put negatively is instructive all by itself because it sets forth something very important that we need to be reminded of, and that is the doctrine of the antithesis. You see, such is the salvation of the people of God, and such is the significance of our incorporating, being incorporated into the body of Christ, that there is a fundamental and basic difference between the child of God and everyone else. A difference that can be described in terms of spiritual Jew and Gentile, between believer and unbeliever, between the ungodly and the godly, the righteous and the unrighteous. And that is what's plain here. There is a certain behavior, a way of thinking. There is a certain uh, way that someone wills and desires things. Uh, 
And there is that way for the ungodly and wicked, and then there is an entirely, completely different way for those who belong to Jesus Christ. Now, as the apostle proceeds, he's also going to show us that this antithesis works itself out within ourselves, too. Right now, his focus is on the difference between us and the spiritual Gentile. The fundamental difference between the believer and unbeliever, but then he's going to turn and look at us, and we're going to see that there's also an antithesis in our own being, one between the old man and the new man. And so that walking this way, walking as a child of God, a walking negatively not as the Gentiles, is going to involve in our own life always putting away or not doing something and putting on and doing something else. There is an old man that has to be put off, mortified, and a new man that has to grow. In fact, even if you look at the behaviors that are listed and that we've read that follows this instruction about the old man and new man, this great antithesis within us, you will notice that those activities also come in a negative and a positive. Stop doing this and start doing this. Stop using your mouth this way and start using your mouth that way. Stop thinking this way and start thinking that way. That's the antithesis. Now what we consider this morning, or this evening, is with regard to our life overall and the great difference, the great antithetical difference in that life and the Gentiles. Consider with me this evening, walking no more as Gentiles. And then we're going to notice the three main aspects of how the Gentiles walk. Again, in the negative, and we will contrast that with what is positive. So in the first place, it's with a dark mind and a hard heart. That's the first thing, a dark mind and a hard heart. Secondly, with given over to pleasure and filth. That's a second thing that characterizes the walk of the Gentiles. They're given over to pleasure and filth. And then the last thing is they are alienated from the life of God. What we have before us tonight, beloved people of God, is entirely negative the passage doesn't really tell us how to walk, but how not to walk. And then if you look carefully, you will discover that it's really not even put in the form of a command. Rather, the apostle comes and says, this I say, this is what I say. Now, certainly, there is authority with what he's saying the apostle isn't saying this for his health. He's not saying it because he thinks this is a good idea for us to consider. There's something that just happened to pop into his head. But he says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. There's something more going on. Certainly he is commanding us here, but he's also instructing us. So much so that he calls what he's saying testimony. He's testifying in the Lord. In other words, as we consider this, what we are to consider is not simply that this comes to us and it comes this way, now walk this way, 
and don't walk that way. But the apostle is also setting forth truth, doctrine. There's truth here. And that's one reason it comes in the negative. The apostle is reinforcing, by putting this in the negative, the great difference between the child of God and the unbeliever, the Gentile and the spiritual Jew, that it's due to something. It's due to something that God has done. It's due to the fact of who and what we are. Now, he doesn't state that specifically, but that's the implication. That's what he's getting at. He's not coming to us now and saying, now look, you're just like those Gentiles. That's who and what you are. And now you need to start being different. That's not the idea. The idea is more, you are the body of Christ. You are members of the church of Christ. I have just laid this out. I have explained to you how this happens. And now understand that this is what it means. This is what it requires. This is what it's all about. So he comes and says, this is what I say, and this is what I testify. So we're going to look at the truth that is here, what he is laying out fundamentally. The main truth, the main testimony, the main thing that he has to say is that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. And you may read that two ways. Number one, don't do that. That ye henceforth, right now, beginning right now, as I'm speaking these words, do not walk as other Gentiles walk. At the same time, he's recognizing you don't. This is why I'm testifying to that. I have observed this. I know this about you as a congregation of Ephesians that you don't do this and that's the way it ought to be. Now with regard to that walk, he calls it the walk of other Gentiles. And then specifically what he gets at with about those Gentiles has to do with what's inside them. We wouldn't naturally associate that with walk. Walk is outward. Walk is observable. But he begins with what's inside. And he describes it as a darkened mind and a hard heart. Really, as we're going to see, a dark and empty mind and a hard heart. Now the Gentiles that he is referring to here are the unregenerated and unbelieving members of the human race. You may see this as representative of every human being by nature. What every single human being is, not according now to creation, not according to how they were made by God, but what human beings made themselves to be in Adam. That's what's being described here. The natural man, the unregenerated man, the unbelieving man. Now he puts it in terms of Gentile. And 
what he's doing here is referring to them again according to their natural sense. That is, the Gentile as opposed to the Jew. But notice he says, other Gentile. What he's doing there is recognizing. There is, in the first place, a fundamental difference between the Jew and the Gentile. That's the Old Testament. There were the circumcised, the descendants of Abraham. And then there was everyone else. Every other human being was a Gentile. But he has to add other Gentiles because the primary audience that he's writing to are Gentiles. They were Gentiles that were brought into the church the very same way that he describes in the first three chapters. They heard the Word of God. They received that Word of God by the gift of faith. They were baptized. They were incorporated into Christ and became members of His body. So they become distinctly different from all other Gentiles. In fact, the apostle could have done what he does elsewhere, which is rather than identify them even as Gentiles now, to say that now they are spiritual Jews. Because not all Jews were true Jews either. There were only the spiritual Jews who were true descendants of Abraham. There were all, of course, descendants of Abraham, everybody that claimed to be a Jew But we read in the book of Romans where the apostle makes the distinction and he says, the true, the descendants of Abraham are the spiritual seed, those who have faith. And so you may see these Gentiles in the church at Ephesus as even no longer Gentiles, but spiritual seed of Abraham, spiritual Jews. Nevertheless, he sees them yet as Gentiles, but he distinguishes them from the other Gentiles because he's recognizing that there is a difference between them and every other natural human being according to their nature. That's significant all by itself. He's already saying that you to whom I'm speaking, you to whom I am testifying are different. Even though you're Gentiles, even just Though you are like everyone else in the world, you're different. They are the other. Now don't walk like them. What the apostle then, just to be clear, is referring to is those who belong to Christ by faith. Those whom God chose in eternity. But he's not simply referring to them as elect, but especially as belonging to Christ by faith. The apostle here speaks that way because he's recognizing, even with that term other Gentiles, that there could very well be many, 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 many more Gentiles who will come to believe and be joined to Christ and thus join the ranks of the Ephesians who are not to walk as the other Gentiles that they formerly were. So keep that in mind as you go. He's speaking here about all the human beings in the world in distinction from all other human beings who have faith. The great difference is between faith and unbelief. Between those that are members of Christ and those that are outside of Christ. That's what's being described here. Now, about 
the Gentiles, the other Gentiles, those who are outside of Christ without faith, that is, without being regenerated, as natural, as they are found in Adam, as they proceed from him, those Gentiles, what characterizes them? And the apostle says, in the first place, we have to go inside and look. Now, what he's describing is therefore the spiritual condition, the spiritual state of the Gentile in his nature. But he's also speaking about his spiritual abilities, what he's capable or incapable of. That's what's being described when he talks about the mind and the heart. Now, to make it plain, there's a lot of words that are used here. There's a lot of descriptors here. But you may take them all and throw them into two categories, which are the two categories of my point. The mind and the heart. The mind and the heart. What's being described here is the soul. What's being described here is the spiritual aspect of man. And it's being described according to its two primary faculties. Just like our body has faculties, it has members, it has parts, so does the soul. And we can recognize a number of them. The Bible speaks about them in various, various terms. But when you take them all and you boil them down, you really come down to two. You can take everything inside, everything that's spiritual, everything that's ethical, everything that describes who we are in our inner man, and break it down into heart and mind. So when you take what the Apostle has to say here, there are, first of all, what's in the mind? What is the mind concerned? What's it all about? Well, he talks about having the understanding darkened. You may include that in the mind. He mentions the mind, but he also mentions understanding. So the mind is where we find understanding. He talks about ignorance, through the ignorance that is in them. He's again there talking about the mind. They're ignorant about something in the mind. There's something in the mind that they ought to know, but they don't know. That's ignorance. But then he brings up matters of the heart. He says they are ignorant. There's ignorance in them because of the blindness of their heart. Now that word blindness is literally translated hard. And it's often translated that, hard heart. The idea is that the heart sees things. It perceives things. It's the faculty of spiritual perception. It's the faculty whereby one perceives things spiritually, especially God. It's where one stands in relationship to God. It's often described as heart because it ought to be, like our hearts, pliable. It ought to pump. It ought to act. It ought to give forth life, as it were. But then there's a diseased heart. There's a hard heart, a heart that no longer functions as a heart should function. And exactly because the heart is a faculty of seeing, it's the faculty of perception and feeling, it's described here by the translation as blindness. That's good. But you may also think of it as hard. Hard like a rock. Hard like concrete. And that's what he's talking about when he goes on to talk about being past feeling. Feeling. 
You see, you feel in the heart. In the heart is where you love someone or you hate someone. In the heart is where you would have feelings about God or not about God. The heart is where you feel the eyes of God boring in upon you. The heart is where you have feelings toward your fellow member of the human race. So there's the mind, the faculty of knowing, the the faculty of processing, the faculty where we decide what we're going to do, where we make decisions based on information that is there. It's the faculty of wisdom, which is the wise use of wisdom. It's the application of knowledge so that we can accomplish that which is good for us. But then there's the heart. The heart is the faculty of desires. It is the faculty of emotions and feelings. It's why he's going to go on and talk about greediness and lasciviousness. Those things are going to be found in the heart. But notice they're all connected. He even connects them by because. They are this because of that. And we even recognize that. Neither one of these faculties could really function on their own. Otherwise, one really is not a human being. Take the heart out of a human being and simply have knowledge and you have really a beast. That's all you have, a beast. A human being has a heart and a mind and they operate together. They function together. Now, I'm not going to get into the primacy of one or the other. It's beside the point. What he's describing is the human being, the natural human being, according to these two faculties. And don't forget this too. These two things are very important and explain why he focuses on them. You see, it's through these faculties, and as I said, primarily the heart, really, that's the idea, where one has a relationship with God. And this is true of every human being. We're not talking about a horse heart or a dog heart. We're talking about a human heart. A human heart made by God Himself in such a way that every human being that has one stands in a relationship to God. And it's a God they know in their mind. In the mind is the knowledge of God. That is placed there. They know who God is. They see who God is. They understand who God is. And then in the heart, there is an attitude about that, a feeling about that. So we often say the heart is where one is connected to God in some way or another. And that connection can be one of, which is why he uses this word, either alienation or one of friendship. But for right now, consider those two things. That these are the spiritual faculties of a human being whereby he is related spiritually to God in one way and where he knows God and either loves God or hates God. Now, what is the Apostle's description of those two faculties. Those two faculties which essentially describe who a human being is, regardless now of his works, regardless now of what he does, what does he know, what does he feel, what does he think, what does he desire? And the apostle takes the human mind and he looks inside and he looks in there with the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ and he pronounces something 
He says, it's empty. There's nothing here. It's as if the apostle peels back the skull and looks inside and there's, there's nothing there. That's what vain means, vanity. The vanity of the mind means it's empty. There's nothing there. And then he notices something else, that it's dark. Now, that should strike you as strange. You should look at that and say, well, that's strange. Yeah, you would expect there to be something in the mind. And you would expect there to be light there. Isn't knowledge light? Isn't there some sort of knowledge? Well, again, remember what the Apostle is describing, and this is important. Certainly, they know all kinds of things. The Gentiles know all kinds of things about science. They know all kinds of things about matters earthly, about arts, about culture, about people. All kinds of things in there. The problem isn't that they don't know anything, but when you analyze it, it's empty. And it's empty because it's worthless. It doesn't mean anything. It has no meaning. It has no value. That's really the idea of the emptiness. It has no value, no function. Now there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons is that everything man knows will be destroyed. But it's worse than that. It's worse than that. And we must not misunderstand even that word ignorance. What the Apostle is getting at when he uses that word ignorance is that there should be something in the mind, but there's not. There's something they don't know. Now when the Apostle takes the emptiness and the ignorance, and then he assigns an ethical value to it. That's what he's doing when he calls it dark. They have a darkened understanding, a darkened mind. He's speaking about it ethically now. There's light. That's ethical purity and goodness. And then there's dark. Dark not only because there's emptiness there, but ethically as it stands before God, there's nothing in the mind that's worthwhile and that's righteous according to God. That's the natural man. That's the Gentile. When you look at their mind and what they think, that's the Bible's evaluation of it all. I know. When you actually look at what man accomplishes in the sciences and in the arts, when you look at the unbelievable technological advances since the time of the apostle, you say, how can that be true? But it's true. Because the Bible here is only interested in the ethical, in what is good according to God's standard, what is good in God's eyes, what has value in God's eyes. What's being described here is the utter loss of the image of God. Losing, as we're going to see when he talks about being renewed in your mind, according to true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, he's talking about the loss of that knowledge. The loss of the image of God in man, even as it's described in this chapter, is not the loss of one's mind. No. The mind stayed intact, but it was the loss of the contents, so that it's empty and dark. Now that's amazing, and we ought to consider it. When you look at your neighbor, when you look at this or that person with all kinds of degrees, when you look at the individuals in the world, 
who are geniuses, who produce amazing, amazing things, works of art. The Bible's condemnation of the mind that did it is it's empty, it's dark, and it's ignorant. It gets worse. You have to look at the heart. And here the Bible says about their heart is it's as hard as a brick. When you examine that heart, what you're going to find is there's no feelings there. They're past feelings. They have no feelings. There should be feelings. God created man with feelings in his heart. Feelings toward himself and feelings toward his fellow human being. Adam had feelings toward God and feelings toward his wife and she also. No feelings there. A heart that ought to love doesn't love. A heart that ought to desire this doesn't desire this. A heart that ought to desire God doesn't desire God. That's his analysis of the heart. Hard. No feelings about God. Now you have to understand this rightly too. It's amazing that in a couple passages of Scripture that this is described, but nowhere better than in Romans chapter 1 where the apostle digs into this a little deeper. And the idea isn't simply that when man fell, these things escaped from his brain. And that all of a sudden his heart just shriveled up and died. But the idea is that man did it to himself. Romans 1 describes that man knows all kinds of things about God. God reveals them. And God reveals them because he wants to leave man without any excuse for not serving him, for rejecting him, for hating him. And so man can look out in the world and he can see with this brain that functions quite well that there's a creator. Man knows in his heart of hearts this world just didn't come to be by chance and probability and natural laws and an explosion. It was made by someone, someone intelligent. And the someone who made this world must be God and must be served. His rules are what rules and ought to be followed. And man receives that, and the apostle says in Romans 1, he turns from it. He casts it out. He throws it out. He holds it on unrighteousness. He gets rid of it. He despises it. He turns it into a lie. He looks around and says, yes, really who God is is these wonderful things that are made. I shall worship the sun. And in our day and age, we just will worship man. That's the creature we worship. And then there's hardening. Make no mistake, take any Gentile. Take a Gentile who gives millions and millions of dollars, gives all their time and energy to others, who seems to show a great deal of love for his fellow human beings, and when you look inside and tap on their heart, you're going to find out it's hard as a brick. Spiritually, it is as blind as a bat. And that's the truth. And yet at the same time, with that heart, there are desires. It's not like there's no feeling. There's feelings about oneself. Selfish feelings. Selfish only really about oneself. And if there is feelings toward others, it's with regard to self. And so there's, as we're going to see, sin. And the sin is going to develop, and it's going to progress. 
But that you see as the natural man. What's being described here, theologically, is depravity. What's being described is what we call in theology the loss of the image of God. The image of God with which man was originally created and the infection, the disease of what we call depravity. I don't have time tonight to read our creedal formulas with regard to this. But the point of it is this, that now if we are not to walk as the other Gentiles walk and have that kind of mind and that kind of heart, they must be changed. Something must be done. And it should be obvious that we can't do it. That someone else must do it. That there must be a fundamental change to the interior of a human being in his mind and in his heart. True knowledge, righteousness, and holiness must be restored. So that instead of an empty mind, there is now a mind filled with the knowledge of God and the true knowledge of one's fellow human being, even with regard to this. You see, if you would give this and teach this to a Gentile, a spiritual Gentile, you say, you're so far from reality, you have no idea what you're talking about. You ought to see all the love I have for my neighbor and all the good things that I do. But one of the first things that happens when some is, someone is given the true knowledge of God so that their mind is filled out is they, they recognize who they really are. This is who I am in my nature, and this is who my fellow human being is by nature. And there's no difference between us. And something must be done to that heart. It must be filled with true righteousness and holiness. There must be that in these faculties of the soul. So that instead of a hard heart, there are feelings, feelings toward God, a desire for God, love for God, desire to live according to the commandments of God. And that's fundamental. That's fundamental to not walking as the Gentiles walk. Now, the apostle is going to describe this as a process. He's going to describe, and really has already described, how God does this. It's called regeneration. That God regenerates us. He gives us a new heart and a new mind. And that new heart and that new mind has feelings and knowledge. But he's also putting it in the form of an exhortation because it's not like you know everything and you have all the feelings that you ought to have. And that's because there's going to be this antithesis. You have this mind that knows God, but there's something counteracting that, fighting against it. Something that telling you that knowledge isn't right, that's wrong, and that's this Gentile mind, as it were. Now, all of that is sort of beyond the preview. Our point here is that a child of God, a regenerated child of God, is fundamentally different. And number one, because in his mind is the true knowledge of God and his neighbor. And there's feelings for God, such that that knowledge is even the knowledge of love. It's not simply that a child of God knows God and knows some theological facts and knows these statements are true and those ones are false, 
but his knowledge is such that he desires God. He sees God as the one and only true good. He sees God as his one and only Savior. He sees God as the source of all true joy and happiness. And consequently, there's a vast difference then between how he feels about everything else and the world also. Even as they have feelings toward certain things in the world, this is what they love. And don't forget that. Again, it's not like in the heart there's no love in the Gentile, no desire for this or that in the world. There is. But when you analyze it, it's hard. It's past feeling because it doesn't concern God. It doesn't have anything to do with God. But that changes in a child of God. What he formerly loved, he now hates. Whereas formerly in his heart he said to himself, this is what make me happy. This kind of money and this kind of job and I need this kind of wife and I need this kind of marriage and this is what I want. This is what I desire. This is what I'm going to strive after. This is what I think is important and not important. It all changes. It all fundamentally flips. He finds rather in himself true knowledge and true righteousness and true holiness. The Apostle is going to lay that out a little clearer in the passage. But that's not the end of it. The Apostle goes on to describe the Gentiles' walk itself. Not now where it originates. What he just described is when you see a Gentile behave the way he does, when you see him do what he does, what explains it? And the answer is his mind and his heart. But now we're going to go look at his behavior. You know, look a little closer, and you will notice that the apostle again assesses it, and what he does is he puts it all into two categories. We're going to consider the first, to work all uncleanness, to work all uncleanness. Now, uncleanness is that which is dirty, that which is defiled. It ought to be white, but it's black. It ought to be pure, but it's impure. It ought to be dedicated to this, but it's made common and profane. The idea, of course, is God has a standard. God says what's pure and not pure. God says this is what something ought to be. This is what it ought to be. It ought to be white like this. It ought to look like that. But it's defiled. And it's defiled by work. And the idea here is that one works to defile it and one desires it exactly because it's defiled. One defiles it because one wants it that way. That's what he means when he says to work all uncleanness. He's describing now the works. Works are everything that the Gentiles do, not what's in their mind or in their heart. But what they do now with their body, what do they do with their hands and their feet and their mouth and their ears and their eyes? And the answer is they work uncleanness. And you have to understand what he means. Number one, he's talking about all their works. doesn't matter what they do. It's not just simply some works are uncleanness. Perhaps this kind of fornication is uncleanness. But over here, things are fine. Those works are good. Those works are right. But all the works our uncleanness. And the idea furthermore, and this ought to be evident to us, because if perhaps we looked at those works and we decided to analyze them and look at them and categorize them, we might look at them and say, ooh, that's pretty good. I, I don't think I would even do that. 
That looks like a clean work to me. But no, this is the analysis of God. God looks at them. And God looks at them not only according to the outward deed, but you see he gets to see from the heart, the, the mind out of which it comes. So we might look at a work and we might say, well, that seems to be done out of pure motives. But God says, no, no, it's not done out of pure motives at all. <laughs> That's done in hatred. That's done in hatred for me. That's done perhaps even exactly to contradict me or to show me wrong. God sees all these things. But the apostle is getting at something else too, which is the Gentiles deliberately peddled in filth. And, and things that even a human being would recognize as filth. So number one, he's saying it's all filth. It's all unclean. Everything that a Gentile does. Go out in the world, doesn't matter whether he's loving his wife, he's making a car, building a building, or he's committing adultery. It's it's all unclean. Make no mistake. Everything that he does. That, that all by itself is sobering, by the way. I know, there's a detraction of us to what the world does. We are attracted to what the world builds. We are attracted to what the world sculpts and makes in books and movies and everything else. But it is not so innocent as you think. You may watch this or that program and say to yourself, well, this is innocent enough. This is clean. But buried within it is all kinds of uncleanness. Some you can see you're just ignoring. There's an agenda hidden behind many things. There's a reason why things are stated the way they are. So keep that in mind, beloved people of God. Everything the world does is uncleanness. And that includes a lot of things that we might be tempted to call good. Why, he produces a good car. That's a good book. That's a good skyscraper in a building. But God looks at things morally. And he sees even in the production of that very fine car moral filth that you and I cannot see. And we have to remember that when we open up our homes to what the world produces when our primary entertainment is what they have and what they want. And we need to ask ourselves, why do they want it? They want it because they're Gentiles. But you're not Gentiles. You're different. But we go on. What he's also pointing out is not only is everything unclean, but it tends toward even more filth and more uncleanness. That too the Apostle talks about in Romans 1. He acknowledges that there's certainly among the ungodly a certain outward conformity to the law, a certain outward understanding and desire for good, decency, and order. Those things can be explained. Our creeds talk about them. But man is given over to uncleanness, and he gives himself over to it. It's not enough that he be married to one wife got to have more. It's not enough that he have relationship with a woman, got to have a man. You want to know why we live in the world we live where things are going on that you can't possibly even have foreseen. The wickedness is filth. It is dirty. It is gross. It is things that even a generation ago of Gentiles would have said that's gross. It is. 
And yet there's a desire for it. Man wants it. He desires it. So he's pointing out the folly of it all, too. But now, don't forget there's something more here exactly because the heart's involved. It's just not the mind, but the heart's involved. There is a desire for this uncleanness, but the apostle gets into that. They do it because they're past feelings. They're given over to uncleanness. They're given over to lasciviousness because they're past feeling. They're lascivious. They're greedy. He piles it all on because he's now going back to the heart and explaining somewhat the process. The lasciviousness has to do with sensuality, pleasure. You may just put that word there, pleasure. That's why I put it in my point. If you want to understand the life of a Gentile, just remember it's filth and pleasure. That's what man is interested in. Oh, he may put on airs and act like he'd like to get rid of the filth, but he really wants the filth. And why? And the answer is because he seeks pleasure. There's something titillating about it. There's something that scratches an itch. There's something that satisfies. And again, it comes down to his heart. Remember that. Ultimately, what explains our world and all the behavior of the Gentile is they only seek pleasure. Again, there's a reminder here. If your life as a Christian or a confessed Christian is only about pleasure, and you find in yourself a hankering for filth, or something wrong, something seriously wrong, I concentrate upon pleasure because we may be free of the filth, but we're still after the pleasure. If we look at our life and analyze it as God analyzes the Gentiles, we discover, you know, are really in it just for the pleasure. Even when I come to church, why do I come to church? Because, well, to be pleasured. I want to feel good about myself. I want to have this kind of sermon. I want to hear these kinds of things. Why are you a member of the church? Because of pleasure. Be very, very careful. Walk not as the other Gentiles walk. And what characterizes their walk is it's all about pleasure. It's all about feeling good. It's all about getting what I think is good. What makes me happy and what gives me joy. And that's not the Christian life. That's not who a Christian is. That's not what characterizes him. Oh, there will be pleasure, no doubt. But in a way, completely unlike the Gentiles receive it. That's the opposite of a child of God. So you look at a child of God, and you look at a spiritual Gentile, and whereas they're working all uncleanness, the child of God is working that which is clean, that which is pure. That's what he desires. That's what he seeks after. That's what his heart and mind wants. Rather than greediness, there is ambivalence about money. There is no desire to have it. One can live with it, and one can live without it. Giving oneself over to lasciviousness? No. Oh, there may be lasciviousness. There may be a desire for pleasure, but one does not give into it. One does not give himself over to it. That's what he's describing here. That is a child of God. That is a member of the church. And then there's the third thing that we have to get into, which is alienated <clears throat> from God. 
a Gentile fundamentally is who he is and is the way he is and has the mind and heart that he has and the deeds that he does because he's alienated from God. And keep in mind here again, it's because he made himself that way. Oh, to be sure, God alienated himself from that filth. God does not live in that filth. He will not live in it. He wants nothing to do with it. It's unrighteousness. God is too holy even to observe it. No, man alienates himself from God. He doesn't want anything to do with God. He flees from God. He means here that God is not his friend. God is not his Lord. God is not someone that he sees as his Savior. Oh, he may turn to God when it suits him. But God is not his friend. God is not someone who he lives with and walks with and talks with. Why? Well, again, it has to do with an empty mind and a hard heart. It should make sense to us. But what we tend to forget is all these things are connected. Being alienated from God and what's in one's mind and one's heart and what one does with one's actions, all are connected. One follows from the other. So much so that these are almost tangled together. But the child of God is not. What fundamentally explains who and what he is? Why is it that he has a mind that's filled with the knowledge of God and of his neighbor? True righteousness, knowledge, and holiness. And he has those things, make no mistake. The apostle could not say here what he says if it's true that the child of God is only totally depraved. That's all he is. Then this passage of Scripture is false and not true. But it is true. Now why is it true? Why is this the case? And the answer is, he's been brought nigh unto God. God is his friend and not his enemy. God loves him and doesn't hate him. He has the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of Adam. He's been redeemed and incorporated into Christ. That's what explains who he is and why the apostle can even come and say, I testify, I'm telling you, do not walk as the other Gentiles walk. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, our God, we thank Thee for our salvation, for the great gift of Thy Spirit, for regenerating us, giving us faith, incorporating us into Christ, all these things that we have considered together as a church, so that we may live unto Thee, that we may live completely different from what we were in Adam and what we are by nature. We thank Thee for a new mind and a new heart. We thank Thee for a new man. We thank Thee, O Lord, for this, Thy great love and faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.